So another day, another time for us to go live. We'll wait a few minutes and let people get uh, online and tuned in and whatever it is they do. How are you doing today, Stuart? Good. How about yourself? I'm doing good. All right. Getting into summer? It's been warm. <laughs> it has been warm, yeah. Getting ready to go swimming and enjoy the last bit of summer before the kids go back to school. Yep. Seems like a thing to say. I don't know. So... Why don't we get started? Thank you for joining us with the Stand, Fight, Win live stream, Real Lawyers, Real Answers. And today we are talking about beneficiaries and all the different levels of beneficiaries, the beneficiary hierarchy, we'll call it, and how these things work out when a trust or a will is going to be distributed. And this is especially a tough case if we're distributing a trust or will uh, proceeds and there's not enough to go around. And so what happens to the trust or will assets, who wins, who loses, you know, who comes first, who comes last among all of the beneficiaries, because not all beneficiaries are created equal. So we're going to go through a series of questions. Um, we don't have a case today, but what I did want to do is I wanted to start just by talking about how the probate code defines different types of gifts under a trust or a will. And it doesn't matter if it's a trust or a will, and I brought in my handy-dandy probate code today. And we're looking at probate code section 21117. So this is 21117. And there's three different types of gifts that are going to be important for our discussion to get today. One is a specific gift. So what's a specific gift, Stuart? I'm going to quiz you on these. You questions. want me to, to answer the question? Yeah, I want you to answer It's a gift that's actually specifically bequested to you, such as I hereby give my 1996 Pontiac Trans Am to my partner, Keith Davidson, at my death. That is a specific gift of the car to you because it's named specifically. I'd like that gift. Yeah, So it's, and it's the important thing is it's identifiable property. So you're talking about a very specific thing, a car. You can identify that car. You know which one it is and you can give it to the person who's supposed to get it. That's different from the next level of gift, which is a general gift. And a general gift is just a gift of money. And so, you know, this $20 is the same as that $20. You can't differentiate between the two. That's what we call a general gift as opposed to a specific gift. Although it's funny because when you look at these trusts and wills, they'll have a provision that says specific gift of money. But that doesn't mean it's actually a specific gift. As far as the probate code is concerned, under Section 21117, it is classified by law as a general gift. So call it what you want in the trust or will. It's still a general gift. So, so far we have specific gifts, and they're going to be favored over any other gift. And then we have general gifts. And now... Which is pretty much gift of money. And then the last is... Um, well, there are something called a demonstrative gift. So that would be a gift of money that's supposed to be made from a particular account. So if I were to say, well, I want whatever the proceeds are in Bank of America account ending in whatever, that would be a demonstrative gift. But for our purposes, let's just stick with specific gift, general gift, which is gift of money, and then finally, residue gift. That's the rest residue and remainder, that's everything else that's left over. So that's what we're gonna be talking about today. And so if you're a beneficiary of a trust or will, the first question that you need to ask yourself is what type of gift are you getting? And what does that mean for you? And is it, could it be multiple gifts that you're getting? Are you a specific gift beneficiary as well as a residue gift beneficiary? Or are you a 
specific general and residue gift beneficiary or just one of each and then you have to figure out where you slot into the favoritism under the probate code of which gifts get given first yeah because you could be one of each you could be you, you, you could get any of those so there's all these different combinations that we have to map out to figure out what you're going to do and, and one thing that, that's exciting if you think about it is let's say that you're a residue gift beneficiary and you're uh, a child and you have siblings that are out there and you're parents have given the other siblings specific gifts that will essentially wipe out the estate and not give you anything in your residue. What we see those people do is end up getting mom and dad who have dementia or Alzheimer's or some other mental incapacity to change the trust to or to sell assets. In other words, to undo those specific gifts. Because once the asset is sold, if I sell my Pontiac Trans Am that I'm going to give you, that's a specific gift to you, what does the probate code say about that? Well, most likely it'll be what we call an redemption, meaning that it's just gone. And so I'm out my specific gift of the car. Right. And then what people are going to do is try to turn those specific gifts into residue gifts. But then you've also found a little special surprise in the probate code that says that if a person other than the set law or the trust creator, if it's a trustee, a bad person, get somebody to sell one of those specific gift assets, in other words, to cancel it out so that they'll get from the residue. What does the probate code say about that? Then the gift um, isn't deemed. So that means that the person who's getting it, like if I were supposed to get your car, it was sold, I would get the sales proceeds from that car at least. What would we have to prove or what would you have to prove in order to have that provision apply? You'd have to prove that the person who had the set lower uh, lacked capacity and at the time the asset was sold. Okay, so it's not an exercise of undue influence that you're trying to prove there. You're right. actually trying to, to show true lack of capacity at the time that the bad trustee sold that asset. That's right. Okay. Yeah. Because what the law is thinking is if you're going to give me your car, but then you sell it before your death, the law presumes that, well, when you sold it, you meant to cancel out that specific gift if you knew what you were doing and you, you had capacity. But if you lacked capacity and somebody, a new trustee, some other trustee sold that, then we can't assume that that was your intent to cancel that gift. So the law is making all these assumptions about what people want to do if they had capacity, if they didn't have capacity. And that's why the rules change depending on the capacity of the set lore. Okay. So why don't we get into some of our questions and we'll see on the Ask and Answer segment and we'll see if we can kind of get a little deeper into these issues and see if we can, uh, if they make any sense as we're applying them to real life questions. These are questions that we actually get from real life people uh, during the week and uh, questions that have come in to us during our live broadcast. So Kayla? Sure, so what if the will says one thing, but the insurance or 401k beneficiary designation says another? Well, I guess, I guess the question here, and Keith, I'll ask you to answer it, but essentially what's happening here is somebody gives all of their possessions, either by way of a will or a trust, and gives it to you know their three kids. But there is an IRA, an individual retirement account, and there's some life insurance. And those uh, are financial arrangements that are held at a, usually some type of a financial institution. And somebody filled out a beneficiary designation form for the life insurance and the 401k, and they go differently than stated in the trust or the will. So can the trust and the will come to save the day and say, no, 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 this life insurance and 401k need to go according to the trust and the will, because that's where the decedent's intent is as to what's to happen to all their property, 
or does the little simple, easy to fill out beneficiary designation form right. for the IRA and the uh, life insurance, does that, does that hold, does that save the day? It, it, so a will is not going to control over a beneficiary designation on a life insurance policy or 401k or an IRA or any other type of beneficiary designation. And I think that's one of the most shocking things that people find out at the end of the day because a lot of times people think, well, the will controls. So whatever I have in my will, that can, that's going to control everything I own. And that's only true to the extent you own something in your own individual name, meaning it's not in a trust or in joint tenancy, and for any assets for which you have not stated a beneficiary under a contract, which that's what that is. When you have a, a 401k and IRA life insurance, you're any, entering into a contract with the people who are holding that money and the contract says, upon my death, pay it to my stated beneficiary. And that contract trumps anything stated in the will or the trust by and large. Now there's a few very limited exceptions and they're very hard to try and redirect it. But the general rule is gonna be that that tiny little beneficiary designation form that you filled out 20 years ago is going to control over the will. And I think people are shocked by that most of the time. Let, let me make the question a little bit harder. Let's say that there is an IRA and individual retirement account, 401k, whatever, and there's a beneficiary designation form where it's going to the, the, the decedent's girlfriend. And nobody knew about this girlfriend, not even the decedent's wife. And so everything else goes by trust to the wife. And in the trust, it references that 401k and even gives the account number and everything. It says all of this is to go to my wife. So you got a trust saying everything's to go to my wife from this 401k, but you've got a beneficiary designation form over here going to girlfriend. How is that going to be resolved? The beneficiary designation form will still control. And so that's still going to trump. There might be some community property issues here where some of that money has to come back to wife because of community property laws. Or if it's a qualified plan, such as a 401k, wife has to consent. And if she doesn't, then it can it might go back to wife. But that's all because of the rules under the 401k that has nothing to do with the trust. So it's all contract driven. It's all contract or statutory driven under 401ks. If it's a, let's say it's a life insurance policy where you don't have to worry about all the federal laws that attach to 401ks. The life insurance policy can pay for, to girlfriend and that's going to control over the trust. Now the wife might say, hey, that was community property. I should get half of it. But the other half still gonna go to girlfriend no matter what the trust says. And I guess my argument to the wife would be, well, maybe the premiums we're half community, but does paying premiums with half community translate into the actual windfall from the life insurance contract? And it may, it may, but that's an argument. It may or may not, yeah. That's right. But it's shocking, I would think, for somebody to find out that, wait a minute, I didn't even know about girlfriend, and now girlfriend's getting a life insurance policy that, or at least half of it, maybe all of it, depending on how things play out. Right. I mean, it's pretty shocking, because I think, you know, people think that these wills and uh, a will controls everything. It doesn't. People think a trust controls everything. It doesn't. A trust only controls what's in, what's in the name of the trust or what, you know, if the trust was the beneficiary of the life insurance policy or the IRA, the 401k, then the trust would control. But if the trust is not a beneficiary to any of those things, you're done. And you just made a good point there. And I think some people out there, I'll reiterate that the beneficiary designation form that you fill out for the, say, the life insurance policy, who's ever going to get that. You can put your girlfriend or whoever you want on there. You can also put the name of your trust on there and then it does flow to the trust. And then once it hits the trust, it's subject to the trust terms. 
But the trust itself has no control until it has that asset inside of it. That's and right. so if the beneficiary designation form does not transfer it to the trust, it's going to go somewhere other than the trust. Yeah. And the law presumes that whoever set up all this confusing stuff. They knew what they were doing. That they knew what they were doing. They clearly yeah. didn't. Yeah. But, you know, people will come in and they'll say, but why doesn't the trust control the life insurance? Because it doesn't. Right. And the person whose assets these were should have done a better job planning that out. Right. And they didn't. Right. And they often don't. Right. All right. Good. If a beneficiary dies before they receive their inheritance, who gets it? Well, that's always an interesting question, isn't it? And I think that question always starts with you've got to look at the document first. So let's say this happens in a trust. Let's say a beneficiary dies before they receive their distribution. You have to start with the trust document. And let's say a beneficiary, let's start with a beneficiary who dies before the set lore. So it's a predeceased beneficiary. Are, and what's going to happen to that person's share of the estate if they were supposed to get a share of the residue, let's say? It depends. It depends on what the terms say in the trust. And so most people, the way they, the default language goes here is that that beneficiary, if they have children, it'll flow down to their children. In other words, let's say that they, the, the, the beneficiary that dies, let's say that they're part of uh, a, three, a set of three siblings. And so there'd be a one-third, one-third, one-third split. Well, if that decedent dies, their one-third will then go down to their kids. No matter how many kids they might have, they would get that one-third of the trust estate. Uh, some, a minority of trusts actually say no, once uh, the, one of these people, one of the beneficiaries dies, I want it to go to the surviving siblings, okay? But it, you could even say, I want that person's share to go to charity. You could say all kinds of things in a trust. So you got to look at what the trust language says to determine where those assets go to a beneficiary who dies prior to the set law passing away. So it all depends on the document. Now, there is some statutory law under the probate code called the anti-lapse statute. And so there are situations where if a trust is silent as to what happens, and if the, per, the beneficiary who predeceased is related by blood to the set lore, then that predeceased beneficiary share might go to their kids if the anti-lapse statute applies. The anti-lapse statute almost never gets talked about, though, because the trust document, because anti-lapse doesn't apply if the trust has a different intent stated in it, and almost every trust does. Very rarely does a trust not say, if somebody predeceases me, then do this. Most trusts will say that 99% of trusts will tell you what to do. That's right. So you got to look at the trust document. Now, what happens if the set lore dies and then the beneficiary dies? What happens to their share of the estate under that scenario? Well, that then you're going to look to their estate plan or their lack of an estate plan. And then it's either going to be statutory driven if they don't have a will or a trust. Or if they do have a will or a trust, then that is probably going to end up scooping up all of their assets in some capacity, and uh, it'll be administered from there. And, and that could be going several ways, Keith. I mean, for example, if somebody has a pour-over will, and they've received an inheritance, but they haven't assigned it to their trust yet, the pour-over will will scoop it up this inheritance, essentially, pour it over into their trust, and then it'll be distributed. But that's going to take some time. Mm -hmm. um, if they have a standalone will and a trust, well, maybe the standalone will will take care of any assets that aren't inside the trust. Right. So it, it could go several ways there. And then, of course, if they don't have a will or a trust at all, then we're simply going to look to the state intestacy laws to determine who are the winners and who are the losers. So for most of the time, if somebody dies after the set lore dies, their rights are going to be vested. So they're going to get 
either they or their, their estate or their trust or however it goes, they're going to get those assets. What about survivability clauses? Well, they're enforceable. And, and we had a case uh, a few years back where we had a conflict in the trust language itself. And it said that, that a child had to, if, if, if the child was to inherit, they had to survive by 90 days from when the settlor passed away. And I think our guy died at like day 88 or something right. like that, right? Very he was two close, days away yeah. from vesting. The problem with that case was there was some specific language in the trust itself that said, immediately upon my death, my children shall inherit one third each or something to that effect. Yeah, the children then living. The children then living. Right then. The minute you're living, you're vesting. And so you took that up in front of a, a probate court. You did a trial on that and you made an argument. Uh, very good judge that we, we like to this day. Um, I didn't know which way that was going to go because I think there was some arguments that would say, no, you got to win. You got to live the whole 90 days before you get because that's mm -hmm. what the intent was. But that probate court, why was it persuaded that the more specific language should be looked at? We got lucky there because the survivor, the, the survival clause that said that you must outlive the settlor by at least 90 days to take was in the back of the trust. And it was under a general section that said these general provisions shall apply to the extent that a specific provision isn't provided in this trust. And so we were able to argue that, oh, there is a specific pro provision provided, which is upon my death, my assets go to my children then living. And it's very clear under the law and under case law that then living means that the moment the settlor dies, whoever's then living at that very moment in time, they're the ones who take end of story. And but, so but we clearly had some sloppy drafting there yes, for the estate planning. Yes. And, and that's why uh, it goes back to this whole fiction that settlers know every they know all four <laughs> corners of the document. Right of the living trust that they've signed, and it's treated as sacrosanct, that this is their intent and this is what they wanted. Right. Here we have two parts of the trust speaking against each other, one being more specific, one being more general. It would be interesting to bring this person back to life just to determine, did you really want them to have to wait 90 days? Right. And what was the purpose for that? And they right. probably would have been like, 90 days? I don't know what the heck you're talking about. Had no clue. Had because, no clue because these are my kids. I want everyone to get one third each. And usually when you see these survivability clauses where you have to live at least 30 days, 60 days, 90 days, they're just in there. It's just whoever drafted the trust, just that's the way they do it. That's what their document says. And I'll bet you they didn't even have a conversation with the client. Well, yeah. And some of this, I think, has to do with like people that are in a car accident together and those kind of things. Right, right. Things that rarely arise. They do arise from time to time. When a husband and wife passes away in a blended family in a car accident, it does matter if yeah. the man died first or the woman died first, right? Because yes. inheritance matters and whose kids get matters. But that's so rare when that happens. You said the husband and wife pass away in a blended. I thought you were going to say a manner, some sort of manner of death that is blended. I thought, well, I thought it was going to get kind of disgusting. Yeah, well, no, no. <laughs> okay. that, doesn't, that doesn't happen in our country. At least we hope not. I hope not. Not, not yet. But our, if it did happen, then you had yet. a survivability not, clause. Not yet. Yeah. Where, we're, where we're going right now, who knows? Okay. But uh, we're not there yet. So. All right. Well, let's move on. On that note, let's move on to the next <laughs> question. Yes, please. <laughs> what happens if the funds in the trust or estate aren't enough to cover specific gifts to each beneficiary? Who gets priority? So Keith, this is, this is the whole point that you raised with the, going over the probate code to start the, the discussion today. And this, by the way, rarely happens in our practice. We do see it happen from time yeah. to time, but let's say that there's, you know, there's a, a you know, $500,000 estate, but there's several million dollars in promised gifts 
Uh, how is this handled by the probate code and what's the court likely to do with something like that? So the probate code says you must start with the true specific gift. So anything that has an identifiable property. So in your example, where I was getting a very specific car, that type of gift would go first. If, and so that, that would be the first off. Secondly would be, and, and the specific gifts even have a priority by the way. So specific gifts to family members trump specific gifts to non-family members. So if I'm supposed to get a car and somebody else is supposed to get a car, but there's only enough, we, we can only give away one car because the other car has to be sold to pay creditors or something. Then if I'm a family member, I would take, if I'm not, then the family member would take and I'd be, I'd be left out in the cold. Next would be the general gifts, the gifts of money. So let's say that you have an estate that's $500,000, but the decedent said, I want to give $100,000 to 10 people. Well, that's a million dollars. There's not enough to go around. So there again, you would look at general gifts to family trumps general gift to non-family. But even then, let's say all 10 people are family. They're all equal in that sense. But there's only $500,000. Well, number one, uh, what you would have to do is just everybody would get a prorated share. They'd each get half because there's not enough to give them a whole gift. So you just downgrade it until you you have enough to give out. And if there's not enough to give any residue, what happens to the residue beneficiaries? They get zero. Okay. They, they're, they're the last in line and they do get what's left over. Now that could be a huge boon sometimes. If you had a $5 million estate and you only had $100,000 worth of general gifts, hey, you're happy to be residue. Right. But if you have a $500,000 estate and you have all these specific gifts and there's nothing left over, once you even once you downgrade the, the gifts of money, the residue gets zero. So do you remember that little BMX bike you had when you were little and it had I that did. little basket in the front that you carry your flowers around I in? I never had a basket. Okay. Yes. I do remember so, those bikes. Though. So that's how I envision this is that there's these baskets. And really, you've got three baskets here that we're talking about primarily. And you got to fill up basket number one and completely fill it up and exhaust it before you can start filling up basket number two. Right. And you got to completely fill up basket number two before you can go and start giving to basket number three. And so in your first hypothetical where there's not enough to go around, you might only fill basket number one up all the way to the top, pay all the specific gifts out, and then have a few of the residue gifts made on a prorated or the general gifts made on a uh, pro rata basis. Right. And then the residue get the basket, they get nothing. Right. Whereas if you have a $5 million trust and $100,000 of the specific and general bequests, those can be quickly filled up and made. And then you can go to that third basket and those people are really happy because there's a lot, a, of money, a lot yeah. of money to go around. That's right. Okay. So it just depends on the estate, but there is a, that priority. So you have to keep that in mind. And Keith did have a basket. So. <laughs> <laughs> I'll never admit it. <laughs> Who pays the bills of the estate if the estate runs out of money? Well, that's an interesting question. I mean, first of all, everybody should know that creditors get paid first. In fact, in probate, uh, the probate attorney and the personal representative get paid first and then creditors before any gifts are made. Because you have to remember that probate is set up primarily. The whole reason that we spend all this money doing court-supervised probates is to protect creditors. We want to protect creditors. So creditors always get paid first. But what happens if there's not enough money in the estate to pay a creditor? So that's what we have, what we call an insolvent estate. There's not enough to go around. And so there is some, that hierarchy you just outlined, I think attorneys are, are listed in there somewhere as well. I think attorneys want to get paid, but you got creditors and attorneys. And you, again, I think you put this into baskets mm -hmm. and the baskets have to be 
paid off first before you can move to the next basket. Uh, but if it's a truly, truly insolvent estate, there's creditors aren't going to get paid. There's something you just right. have to write those debts off. And the estate will be closed as an insolvent estate with not enough money for anything. Maybe not even lawyer's fees, maybe not even representative fees. Yeah. Uh, so that can that can happen in, under the worst case scenario. But if there's a little bit left over, then it can go according to priority. Yeah. And, and in a state, when we're talking about an estate, so you look at the probate first. If there's not enough there, you can go out to trust that the settlor created or the decedent created during their lifetime. If there's still not enough assets to pay the creditors, then the creditors just don't get paid. Yes. And the benefit, the kids don't have to take over those debts. And I think that's important to point out. Yeah, we've had we've had beneficiaries call sometimes and, you know, they're they're even at the point where they've been writing checks to the credit card companies after mom and dad died paying with their own money because there's just not money in the estate. And please don't do that. Uh, you are not responsible as children of your parents for paying for their credit cards. And in fact, what we've done when we used to do a lot of administrations, probate administrations and trust administrations, whenever we had a you know $50,000, $60,000 in credit card debt, even if there was money in the estate, what did we do? We called the credit card companies and what did we say? Negotiate them down. Yeah. There's not enough to go around. There's not You're enough to take go around. Less. We'll give you 30 cents on the dollar. And what would they say? They would take between 30 to 50 cents on the dollar. And they'd say, if you send it today, that yeah. we'll agree to that. And so there's ways to do that as well. Yeah. Yeah. And it's definitely something you should look into. Next question. Can current beneficiaries exhaust the assets if there are future beneficiaries in the trust? Boy, that's a that's a tough one to answer, and the only reason it's tough, Keith, is because it's so fact intensive. Right. Uh, what yeah. are the provisions of the trust? Right. That allow the current beneficiaries to use under what capacity, and then what happens if they pass away? So why don't you take a crack at that the best you can? So let's. These are the trusts. Let me give you a, an example of a trust that I like to see the most when a case comes in that I think protects current beneficiaries, but also protects future beneficiaries. And this situation arises most when you're dealing with survivor's trust and bypass trust. So that's when a married couple create a trust. When one of them dies, they're gonna create two what we call sub-trusts. And the surviving spouse will have a survivor's trust. That's their money. They can do whatever they want. They can revoke it, change it, whatever, it's theirs. And then the bypass trust is the decedent's half of the estate, and that's usually locked away in an irrevocable trust but the survivor can use it right during their lifetime. And what I like to see is when the bypass trust is created, there's a current beneficiary, that's the spouse, but there's also future beneficiaries, that's the children. And these situations get really dangerous when the children are stepchildren. So this is, let's say it's a second marriage and the children are, are children of the decedent, but not children of the spouse. If they're children of both spouses, it becomes a little easier in theory, not always, but more often than not. So now you have a trust that you're worried, the kids are worried that the, the spouse, the stepmom or stepdad is gonna spend all the assets. You know, that's what the worry is. So it's usually a good idea to allow the spouse to get the income, just give them all the income, invest the assets, generate some income, let the spouse have that. That's just a nice income stream for the spouse. And it's not a huge amount of money, but hey, it's nice. And then when it comes to principal, that's where you have to be careful. So most trusts will say the spouse can get principal for health, education, maintenance, and support. The problem is, even though it's what we call a ascertainable standard or a limited standard, it's still pretty broad. I mean, what do you need for health, education, maintenance, and support? It could be a lot. I can tell you, if my stepkids are giving me a hard time and they make me angry, I can think of all kinds of things that I need that'll fit into that HEM standard. And I know you a long time. I mean, you're clearly high maintenance. <laughs> so when it comes to maintenance and support, it's gonna be a lot. <laughs> 
But what I tend to prefer, when especially obviously to help protect the kids, is if there's at least some standard in there that says, look, the spouse can get this money, the principal if they need it for health, education, maintenance, support, but the trustee has a right to look at their other assets, meaning the survivor's trust. So if the surviving spouse has $10 million and the bypass trust has $5 million, why do they need to delve into the principal of the bypass trust? Because they need a yacht. <laughs> They need a yacht. So I like the provisions when the trustee has the right to look at other assets. And and there are times, though, when the trust will say, well, the surviving spouse has to first deplete all of their assets. Which I was going to say is my favorite provision. And the reason I like yeah. that is because that truly is a him standard now. Right. That truly is the if you if the survivor's surviving spouse has to deplete all the assets in the survivor's trust first. They become destitute, right? Right. And now they can seek redress from the bypass trust, not only of the income coming off, but they can get into the principal for their health, education, maintenance, and support. And that's the provision that best protects the kids because it forces a depletion of the survivor's trust. It's a little scary for the spouse, though, because do you really want the surviving spouse to have to uh, spend down everything, including where they live? You know, maybe not. You know, so maybe you want to say they can de- they have to deplete their assets except for their personal residence or something like that. Well, giving the trustee discretion is, in, in my mind, it's a good way to go if you picked a good trustee because yeah. then if they can look to the assets and make that determination. But it's a tough position for a trustee to be in. Think about it. it. Is. They get asked by the spouse, hey, I need money. And now they have to come in and make a judgment about whether they truly need money or not. Well, and usually the trustee is the spouse. And so that then you even the have- The judgment's a, easier in that case. <laughs> it's easier, but it's more dangerous for the kids. What I don't like to see is I don't like to see trusts that's, that just say the surviving spouse can get principal based on health, education, maintenance, and support. And there's no other criteria. Right. That's really dangerous for the kids. That's right. And I think it gives a little bit too much latitude to the surviving spouse. And let's be also clear about this, that most of these cases where the surviving spouse in a blended marriage is supposed to set up a bypass trust and a survivor's trust and do all those things, it, it, it almost never happens. Right. And the surviving spouse treats all the assets as if they're their own. And of course, that we've talked about this in recent or previous episodes, and that is it's a difficult decision for the kids of the deceased parent to figure out. Do they want to come while the, the surviving spouse is still living and try to rectify that? Or do they want to wait till after they pass away? And that's, that's there's no right answer to right. that. I will say, though, that a trustee is supposed to balance the interest between the current beneficiaries and the future beneficiaries and try to protect each of them you know, give the current beneficiary what he or she needs, but also save enough for the for the future beneficiaries. It doesn't always work out that way, but that's what a trustee is supposed to do. Well, and, and and I think you made a great point that most of the time these trustees are the surviving, it's the surviving spouse who is also the trustee. Right. They tend to be able to rationalize just about any decision they make. So right, that's right. Yeah. It gets problematic. Any other questions, Kira? One final question from Facebook. My family has air property. I am the, or am I the legal heir only after my mother passes? It depends on who it's coming from, I'd say. So when you say that you have, you're an heir at law to a piece of property, uh, it depends on who's passed away as to whether you're a current heir at law or some future heir at law. Um, So I can imagine, like, let's say grandma dies, right? Your grandmother passes away. Grandma has three kids. One of them is your parent, but they're still alive. Under that scenario, when grandma passes away at that moment in time, you're not technically an heir at law yet because you're too far removed. There's somebody who has a better priority than you, your parent, who's going to take 
instead of you, unless there's a trust or will that changes that. But if we're just talking about straight up heir at law, whereas if grandma dies, has three kids, and one of them is your parent, and that parent has predeceased, now you are a direct heir at law because their share is most likely going to step down to you. You essentially stand in your mom or dad's shoes. That's a better way to say it. At, at that point. And right. so if your mom and dad were to receive anything under the intestacy statute, which they would, yes. then you you and whoever, how many siblings you have, will receive an equal share of that. Now, if the property has passed down to your parent and then your parent dies, at the moment that your parent dies, then you would become an heir at law That's of right. whatever your parent's share was at that time. So... As long as there's somebody who has a superior claim than you as an heir at law, you're not a current heir at law. You might be some future heir at law at some point, but I would say you're not a current heir at law of that property. And, and also keep in mind the baskets analogy that we talked about earlier on Keith's BMX bike. It applies here as well. And that is once you're part of a class of heirs that do get all, you get everything. And then if there's anything left over or if there's somebody passed away, then it can go down to the other heirs. But the point is you have to find that class of heirs and then they get everything. So you don't you don't figure out there's certain classes of heirs and everybody gets a pro on If you're in that elect group of the good ones, you're going to get everything. That's right. Yeah, I would agree with that. I plan on getting a new mountain bike and I'm going to see if I can get a basket attachment. <laughs> Now like, that you've talked about he, it so much. He's like Ferdinand. You ever read that story about oh, Ferdinand? Yeah. He liked to smell roses. That's right. You used to put the basket there and put your roses. Yeah, you know, I used to deliver flowers when I was in college. Did, did you get fired from that job? We don't need to talk about that. <laughs> Only job I was ever fired from, delivering flowers. You're fired. Yeah. There's two. Okay, thank you. All right. Any other questions, Kayla? No. Since apparently I've been fired from the live... <laughs> Maybe rightly so. No other questions? Okay. Well, I want to uh, thank you very much for joining us. It was an exciting subject matter this time, Keith. I want to say that uh, we get a lot of questions on these issues. Yeah. They're not, you know, each one can't be uh, riveting as, as the others, but I think it's an important topic that we covered today. I want to thank you for joining, uh, for joining us today. You can find a recorded version of this video on Facebook and YouTube, where we house all of our videos, including all of our past live episodes. You can also find an audio-only version of this broadcast on our channel on Podbean. And I would always recommend that you visit our site, aldavlaw.com, and check out all of our videos there as well, including our Form Vault series where we go over different forms and our past live episodes and our trust law courses, all there hopefully to help you learn and get educated on the complicated world of trusts and wills. So again, thank you, Stuart. Yeah, I want to thank Manisha and Kayla for everything. And I uh, would like to invite any of you out there, if you do have any questions, you'd like to speak to us individually, please give us a call and be happy to discuss your matter with you. Thank you very much. We'll see you next time.